The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. Well, I think sometimes God's providence is a bit humorous and that we've been going through the book of Ephesians, and today we're in chapter 6, 1 through 4, and this happens to be the Sunday that very many of our parents are taking their children to college or sneaking in that last vacation before school begins for them Monday. Uh, this reminds me to thank God for our tech team for their recording work, uh, but it also, I hope by the end of the sermon you'll see why all of Scripture is God-breathed and all of it is profitable for each one of us. So there's no part of Scripture that isn't written for our completion in Christlikeness. And this Scripture is for us, too. In fact, if you ask anybody about their parents, you'll get a response. If you have long enough, <laughs> they probably have a lot to say. For good or for ill, they have many ways that their parents have impacted them. And if you ask any parent about their children... They too will have a lot to say. Maybe you'll see a mixture of joy, regret, sorrow, elation. Doesn't it just easily show us that the impact that parents and children have on one another is massive? We are so shaped by this. And so let me say up front, I know today's topic can easily be a sensitive one that God has given us wisdom on. It could touch a raw nerve for any one of us for any number of reasons. It's also a complex one to work out because we live after the fall and the world is broken and things just don't go the way they ought to as easily as we sometimes wish they would. But I also want to let you know up front, today's scripture that God has breathed is full of hope because this is what God's design is. And God is fully capable to give us the grace we need to experience it and to find it flourish regardless of whatever deviations we have in our own home, whatever hurt we have in our own home, whatever brokenness we bring to the Lord this morning, the Lord is able to do above and beyond what we could ask or think. So here's a text for you just to kind of give us the right tone this morning. Second Corinthians 12 verse 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest on me. So whatever we bring to the Lord this morning in our home and in our background and in our biology, the power of Christ is available for us. So let us see that from Ephesians 6, 1 through 4. I'll tell you up front, normally, you know, I get to the sermon pretty quickly. Today's a more protracted intro, and hopefully you'll understand why. What's interesting about these four verses is how short and straightforward they are. I mean, Ephesians 5, 22 through 33 is about marriage. There's a lot more there, and there's a lot more nuance to it. 6, 5 through 9 is about work, and that's even a little longer, and it's more nuanced. Today's passage is the shortest and the least nuanced, it's just very straightforward. Here's what God's design is. Why is it so short? Why did God not write an exhaustive manual on parenting, preferably with tablets and highlighted footnotes? <laughs> Why didn't he do it that way? 
Let me give you three answers. This is still the intro. If you're a note taker, here are three in the intro. Why did God not give us an exhausting parenting manual? Here's answer number one, because we are in chapter six of Ephesians. Now, this is a simple point, but it's really important. God did not breathe isolated statements to be put on coffee mugs. As nice as that is, he actually breathed out a book that is a collection of books. So when we're in Ephesians 6, you have to know the preceding five chapters to understand why he's able to be brief here. He can brief be brief here because he's anticipating that you've all heard and read the preceding five chapters, which give us the foundation upon which these verses make any sense. Remember, chapter 1 is God's amazing grace in Christ. Chapter 2 is how to walk in Christ differently from the way we used to walk. Chapter 3 and 4 gives a redemptive history of the community of faith. Chapter 5, the marriage relationship. Now chapter 6, parenting and being an honorable child. Don't you see how those build on the preceding? Let me give you a practical illustration of how they build on the preceding. Chapter 3 and 4 talk about the community of faith. Don't you think the community of faith has much bearing on your parenting and child relationships? Uh, years ago, before Steph and I had children, but very much were praying to have children, there was a couple in our church that we just thought were really, really good parents. So we said, hey, if, if we can help you get child care, we would like to take you out to dinner so that we can just pick your brain. We know that no parents are perfect, but this is something we pray God will allow us to do one day. And it seems like you do it very well. And they said, we would love to do that, but we won't name any names when we tell stories to you that evening. And it was so helpful. We spent the evening learning from them because chapter 6 builds on chapter 4. There's a community of faith where you get to learn from brothers and sisters. God gave us that to help us. So my first answer is, why is it so short? Why not a full manual? Because this is chapter 6. All right, here's my second answer. Why is it so short? Why not a full manual? Because the pattern of parenting is God the Father and God the Son. And that is the whole story. Now, do you know how many books are published on parenting in this country? Let me tell you, because George Barna actually did some research on this. Just between the years 2000... And 2008, more than 75,000 books were published on parenting. Go to any Barnes and Noble, go to Cameron Village Library, go to Leesville, go to North. You can tell I've checked them all. <laughs> they have dozens and dozens of books every year on parenting by somebody who has some form of alleged expertise. Here, the Bible has given us the stuff underneath that that we actually need. How does God the Father parent? How does God the Son respond? Knowing that is infinitely more important, even if the other helps. So actually, let me show you that from the text. I know we're in chapter 6. Can you flip back one chapter to chapter 5? Flip back one chapter, please, to Ephesians 5, so that you see from the Bible that God expects that our knowledge of Him as Father will be foundational to our understanding of our role. So look in verse 1 of Ephesians 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, 
a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In just these two verses, we see God the Father's love. The word love is used repeatedly to let us know how he approaches us in Christ. We see Christ's submission to his Father, though. He did this as a sacrifice to God. And we see that we are to imitate and reflect that. So my second answer, why not a full manual? Because the Father and Son display it more formatively and foundationally. All right, here's my third answer. Why not a full manual? Because actually knowing who I am in Christ is the only power and hope I have for living out well in the home. Knowing who I am in Christ is the only power and hope that I have. Let me give a couple examples. For example, if I know who I am in Christ, that I am a great sinner, but he is a greater savior, that I will never be forsaken or forgotten, that I have had my sins removed as far as the east is from the west, that I have a home in heaven, that I have a security and a father who loves me. I know that, and that sinks in. Then I won't try to find that in other places. That means I can replace insecurity with security. That's really important in parenting. If I'm trying to find my security through my children, rather than the satisfaction of what I have in Christ... And it's very likely that when they're going through struggles, that I will be embarrassed, that I will feel fragile about how that reflects on me, or that I will squeeze them too tightly because I will fear that they're the only hope I have to feel good about who I am. You see? Knowing who I am in Christ, then, is foundationally important. If I'm trying to find the love and joy and security that only God can give me through my children, I'll crush them. Now, the verses in 6, 1 through 4 are interesting. Three of them are on your role as a child. Only one of them is on a parent. Did you know Ephesians 6, verse 4 is the locus classicus of parenting in the entirety of the Bible? Just one verse. Twelve were on marriage. Just one on parents. What should we learn from that? That the best gift you can give to your children is to love your spouse well. Dr. James Dobson wrote a book called Bringing Up Girls, and when Evangeline was born, I got it, and I read it. And in his book, he tells a story of when he was in his backyard, and his daughter was about eight or nine years old. And he was pushing her on the swing, and he said to her, Sweetie, I love you. And she said, I know. (laughs) And as he pushed her again, he said, Well, I love you. She said, yeah, I know. And then he finally said, well, how do you know that I love you? And she said, because you love mommy. It's such an important way to understand how Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, builds on Ephesians 5, 22 through 30. William Farley wrote a very helpful book, Gospel Power Parenting, my favorite recommendation on parenting in a Christian way. And here's what he wrote in it. Marriage-centered, not child-centered homes exert the greatest influence on their children for Christ and on his kingdom. He recommended that even married couples at times spend time with just each other so that it will influence their children because they are watching. And as he concludes, it gives them great joy and security to see their parents loving each other. Let me give a couple specific examples here. Parents, this means that it is never, ever okay to make our child our close confidant against our spouse. Never. It doesn't matter what age they are. 
It doesn't matter if you had that child before this marriage. The child can never be your close confidant against your spouse. Ephesians 6, 1 through 4 is building on a strong marriage in Ephesians 5, 22 through 30. It will be so much weight on them if you bring them into the level of intimacy reserved really for husband and wife. It also means, by the way, even if like me, you have a pretty private personality and you're fairly stoic, it is good, husbands and wives, to love each other within the purview of your children. Uh, last week or so, we were watching some movie on a Saturday afternoon with the kids. And uh, at, at, at the end, I think it was the husband and the wife leaned in for a kiss. And all my boys were on the couch on this side, and every one of them said, oh, that is disgusting. And I really want to stoke that. So I said, yeah, that is so gross. You know, let's keep that as long as we can. And then immediately my son Judah put his finger right out and said, then why do you do it with mommy? <laughs> but I was really glad that he knows that, um, that I do love his mom. I know that's foundational for him. So this is a long intro and I know that. But it's an intro to show us that Ephesians 6, 1 through 4 does not exist in a vacuum. It builds on the relationship of Christ, the joy of the community, and the marital relationship that's before it. So now that we have that clear, the title of today's sermon is Parents and Children in Jesus. If you need the Pew Bible, it's page 1162 still. And only two points today, because the text breaks down this easily. Point number one, children. Point number two, parents. That's it. Point number one, children. Look in God's word in Ephesians 6, verse 1. Children, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Who are the children? Well, the word refers to actually all of us. The word is not too tight as to mean only those who are living at home with their parents. And that's why verse 2 goes on to say, honor your father and mother. A child has someone that they view as their parental figure, and they can always live in appropriate obedience or honor to them. Yes, then that means all of us are being referred to here. The word obey especially refers to when you're in the stage of dependency, when you're living with your parents, if you were here a few weeks ago, we saw in verse 31, there's a time where a man leaves and holds fast to his spouse. This is talking about before that time. So the word obey actually is a very strong Greek word. It's not the normal one. It's the one used in relationship to Christ. It means absolute obedience and deference. So this is referring to when a child still lives dependently on his parents. They're to approach with complete obedience. But then the word honor First to our attitude, and this goes well beyond when we leave the home. We still honor our mother and our father, even when we are adults. When we were in the book of Exodus, we paused on the Ten Commandments for some time. And so that sermon talked a lot about how we honor our father and mother. But let me say a few things today. God's design is that in the beginning, parents sacrificially serve their children. But then his design is that as we emerge into adulthood, we sacrificially serve our parents. Practically, the Bible gives many ways that we ought to do this. It, it means that we talk well of them. We speak respectfully of them. Even when we're speaking of their memory, we say only what we need to say. We don't speak in a way that defames them or dishonors the gift of God that they were to us, despite, no doubt, shortcomings that they had. 
It also means biblically in 1 Timothy 5, verse 8, that if they're living and they're aging, that we take it on ourselves to have a plan to care for them as they're aging. We take a responsibility to honor them in that regard. Honoring them very much means our posture of them, our respect of them. It means to call them and to keep up with them and to know what their challenges are, who their friends are, what their needs are, even if we're states away as, as I am. In fact, the word used for parents here is a visceral one. It means those who gave you life, those who God used to bring you into this world. It reminds us of our dependency on them in God's means for our very existence. The verse in verse 1 says, obey them in the Lord. This reminds us that the motivation is for the Lord. And it also reminds us that the mandate is in line with the Lord. Of course, if parents were to command that we disobey the Lord, the Lord remains the supreme authority. But our general posture is to do this because the text says this is right in verse 1. I love that phrase, this is right, because we live in a cultural moment where having clear moral statements is not very common. So it's refreshing to hear God say, hey, this is right. In Colossians 3, 20 and 21, a parallel verse, it says to obey them because this pleases the Lord. Isn't that a helpful way to discern what is right? How do you want to know if something's right? Does it please the Lord? This is how I know that something is right. Now, let me give a word on this. I know in our cultural moment, we don't like the idea of there being a fixed truth or a fixed right. We fear that that is a restriction of our freedom. Maybe this illustration will help you. Have you ever been in a building that is not completed? The building's not up to code yet, so it doesn't have everything finished. Imagine you're touring that building And as you turn the corner, you find that where there was an elevator, the doors aren't there. You walk down a hallway, and where there are stairs, there's no rail. You turn to the end of the hallway, and there's just a massive hole, and you would fall 40 feet. Now imagine you're touring that house with your young children. Would you feel free? (laughs) You'd feel terrified, because those boundaries are what enable freedom. In today's passage, God is telling us the design for our flourishing, the design for true freedom. This is right because this is good for you. Whatever's right is also always best. That's why God has this design. All right, now verse 2 continues by making an interesting quotation. So honor them because this is the first commandment with Promise. Your translation may have that phrase in parentheses. It's as if Paul is saying, and we all know this commandment is the one that has a promise. Do you know what he's referring to? The Ten Commandments. This is the fifth commandment. And this is the first one that God gives a built-in, here's why this is good for you, clause. Now, the clause that God gave them was given at a historical situation where God had just rescued them from Egypt. And for a time, they are nomads. But God is leading them to a promised land in Canaan. He's telling them, as you build this new society, this new nation that I've made you, it'll go well with you as you honor your father and mother. It'll be a foundation upon which flourishing can occur. Is that still true for us today? Well, I think the answer is yes. It's still true that God's desire is that it's beneficial 
as a general proverbial promise of wisdom that we trust the Lord as he fulfills his promise. So look in verse 3, that it may go well with you, that you may live long. Here's a proverbial promise. So children, it is beneficial for us as adults, children, that we still honor and respect our parents. Again, I'll give you an example. Especially because I have young children at home, it is vital that they see me honor my parents and my wife's parents. Them seeing their grandparents revered helps them honor and trust us as we hopefully honor and trust the Lord who's over us all. It helps it go well with us. All right, now a word on parents, and we'll we'll land the plane here a little bit more. So number one was children, but now this incredibly brilliant verse, verse four, number two, parents. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. First, we note it's only addressed to fathers. Why? Why are only fathers being spoken to here? It is interesting, isn't it? Probably there's a few reasons to explain this. First, we should notice that the preceding verses said fathers and mothers. So it was referring to both. But also, if you've been here the last several weeks, we saw at the end of Ephesians 5, God putting responsibility to sacrificially lead, especially on husbands and fathers. And that's probably the point here. Fathers, including both fathers and mothers, but especially fathers in the lead, and perhaps because fathers may especially struggle here, do not provoke. What does do not provoke mean? In English, we have do not provoke, and then we have the word anger. And all four of those are just one word in the Original. If you have the New International Version today, I think it helpfully summates it this way. Do not exasperate. Do not exasperate your children. It's interesting. The word exasperate is only used in the Old Testament referring to God the Father. The Israelites, through their prolonged disobedience, might exasperate him. The same word is used. The idea is that God has a just reason to be disappointed. And that's the meaning that it has here, that your child prayerfully does not have a just reason to be disappointed with the way that we have parented them. As parents, there's no question that we fail. This failure means we need grace, we need forgiveness, we need to acknowledge our failure. And this warning reminds us that may it not become a pattern that we exasperate our children But now the text swings to the positive rather quickly. Not only should we not provoke them, but now there's something positive that God has called us to do. He has called us, in verse 4, to bring them up. And there are two ways he tells us to bring them up, and there's an amazing balance in those two ways. Bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. These two words balance one another out in a remarkable way to perfectly hit a golden mean that nothing else hits them. So bring them up means to bring them to maturity, to adulthood, to independence, to bring them out to their own. But then it's balanced by these two words with discipline and instruction. So here's a good way to think about it. These two words are given so that we won't over-discipline or under-discipline. Here's how one author puts it well. Peter O'Brien 
warns us about over-discipline. He says the word means that we should be careful about excessively severe discipline, harsh demands, abuse of authority, constant condemnation, subjecting a child to humiliation, or any insensitivity to the child's needs and sensibilities. But not only does the word warn us from over-discipline, but it also warns us from under-discipline, a failure, a disengagement, an indulgence, or an approach to them as peer rather than parent. So these two words, if you look at them again at the end of verse 4, I know I'm really zeroing in on them, but the word discipline means the positive you bring, the formative. And the word instruction is a word that means the corrective. Think about it this way. If you're teaching a child to ride a bike, the positive is you teach them how to pedal and how to steer. But the negative is you teach them how to brake and how to swerve if necessary. Or imagine Plato. I don't know what the Plato's like in your house, but in mine, positively, you can get out Plato to shape something and form something. But negative, somehow every time we open the bottle, there are loads of pieces of dirt and other scratches that it has picked up. And you have to correct those off. So the text is talking about what you do positively and what you do negatively, that both are necessary. Now that alone, that there are both, is extremely helpful because that lets us know, parents, that our parenting cannot be all correction and it cannot be all affirmation. In fact, don't we know that the balance may differ per child? One child you may be tempted to give only correction to, but you should step back and say, where have I positively encouraged them? Other child, it may be easy to give affirmation, but surely there are areas the Lord does want them to grow. This balance helps us to ask, are both occurring in my parenting? Both the positive formation, which is so formative, and the corrective, one necessary. Also, this balance has no human parallel. In the first century in which this was written, parents literally owned their children. The idea was that the children were expected to be shaped to the whims of the parents. In other words, it was usually heavy-handed. But in today's modern world, normally we present children as something that should only be affirmed that their dreams should be fanned and they should never be corrected. But here, God is giving something without any human culture's parallel. He talks about both, both being necessary to combine them. Now, this might be the point that someone could object. Josh, it sounds like this verse is telling us that we have to indoctrinate our children with truth. But that's always been my problem with Christians and churches. They're indoctrinating their children. But that's not what the text is saying. Actually, it's saying something more subtle. It's saying that all of us are discipling our children. The question is not, are we discipling them? All of us are. The question is how and towards what end. And this verse says how we ought to do it with the balance of both. Not excessive correction, which will malnourish them. And not excessive affirmation, which will make them entitled. But it also tells us the goal. I read this week um, a time where the ethicist Stanley Hauerwas, he was teaching at the University of Notre Dame, and as a thought experiment, he asked the students why anyone should have children. And the answers in the room were pretty interesting. Many of the students at Notre Dame said, well, you should have children because children are fun. 
They should spend some time in my house. (laughs) They said, or, you know, you should have children because that's just, um, that's an expression of, of love to have more kids. And what Stanley Hauerwas pointed out to the students at Notre Dame is they don't realize how much they are breathing in the air of individualism. They don't know history or philosophy well enough to know that only someone very recent in history would think of having children through the lens of what I get out of it in a totally individualistic sense. So Horowitz took some time to tell them the reasons you've given for having children are personal. And there are two negative outcomes that will happen if the reason you have for having children is personal. First, you will then use the children for your own personal happiness. Well, I, I need you in my life because I have a gap of intimacy or I have a sense of fragility and I need to get that from you, which of course will damage them. Or the second outcome you will have is you will then be afraid to lead the children because as a thoroughgoing individualist, you will think that they need to find their own happiness and fulfillment. Here's what Hauerwas wrote. The refusal to ask our children to believe as we believe or to live as we live or to act as we act is a betrayal that actually derives from moral cowardice. For to ask of our children that they have a goal to move towards requires that we have the courage to live truthfully. Now, I want you to see in Ephesians 6 why children are being had. It's at the end of the verse. Do you see it? Fathers, do not provoke them. Bring them up in a discipline and instruction towards what end and purpose? The Lord. O'Brien perfectly writes at this point in his commentary, Ultimately, the concern of parents is not simply that their sons and daughters will be obedient to their authority, but that through their parenting, their children will come to know the Lord himself. Why then is there a goal to be fruitful and multiply? to lead people to the Creator, to lead them to Christ, to make disciples of Jesus. Now, this text does build on a couple assumptions of a biblical worldview, and let me pause on those for a minute, because there are a few things that are being said here in Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, that he's assuming you will know as God's design, but actually in our cultural moment, may be pretty far from God's design. So let's take those Slowly, I'll just give two this morning, two assumptions that this text has that are fruitful for us. Parents, the assumption that this text has is that parents will parent their children. Okay, the assumption this text has is that parents are the primary presence that are parenting their children. When this was given, this was God's design, and yet now it's perhaps one of the most countercultural things that I can say from Scripture, that God's expectation is that parents are parenting their children. Now, it was actually countercultural in Paul's day, too. In Roman law, when a child was born, the child was laid down in front of the father. And at that moment, the father decided whether or not he wanted to keep the child or dispose of the child Both options were legal. It was not uncommon for fathers to then have their children either given away or just killed through exposure without any legal repercussions. Now, over the thousands of years since then, 
We've become perhaps more sophisticated, but we are still sinful, and we do have a danger of abandoning our calling as parents. So let me carefully but graciously encourage us from this passage this morning, and it's what God says for our good. So parents, God's design is that parents primarily parent their children. So hear me this morning. I know there are times that there are legitimate reasons for things to be in a unique season. But as a general rule, parents, no supplemental influence should become the primary parent of your children. No nanny, no daycare, no teacher, no coach, no grandparent, no aunt, no uncle, no friend should be the primary parent of your children as a general rule. And I'm not even talking about quantitative time because this text isn't. I'm talking about who they would say primarily shapes their direction. Who they would say primarily has set them on their course. God has designed that person to be you. And that will mean in our culture today that you may have to live counterculturally by protecting the primacy of your calling as parents in ways that people around you think is ludicrous and that, frankly, today might be financially disadvantageous. I have a number of friends who are both very successful in their career, and I respect that, and that can be a great thing. But if that means you will no longer be the primary parent of your children, then you do have to have a conversation in your home and decide what your goals are and if they're necessary or if there's standard of living that you can let go so that you can be the primary parent in your children's life. Remember how short the window is, how ephemeral the moment is, but how eternal the impact is. This text assumes that we will know that. Warren Wearsby was teaching students at a college, and he was talking about prayer. And he said that God is a father who's always available to answer us when he pray. And as an illustration, Warren said, in my own office, I have a receptionist and I've instructed her that if my family calls to please get me and interrupt whatever I'm doing. At the end of his talk at this college, one of the students came up to Warren and said this, sir, would you please adopt me? I can never get through to my father and I badly need his encouragement. Surely we all know as parents that there must be some protection that we do. Otherwise, it's so easy for cultural to erode our responsibility. So that's the first assumption of this text, that parents will be the primary parents of their children. But there's a second assumption of this text, and again, it builds on the five chapters preceding. Here's the second assumption, that all of us will need to go to Christ for grace over and over and over and over. All of us will fail as children and will fail as parents because we still have pride. So let me talk about some ways that pride manifest so that we can go to Christ with our pride so that he can not only forgive it, but transform it into the humility that we need. Here are some examples. Sometimes in pride, and, and by the way, I wrote these because I know them from my own experience. Sometimes in our pride, we can want to just be left alone. And so we want the solitude and comfort that comes with our own independence that our children are impinging upon. But if we give into that pride, then one day 
will be like Eli, who was surprised that Hophni and Phinehas were so far from the Lord. Or sometimes, conversely, in our pride, we can want to control our children in a way that makes us really the master and them the clay. We can try to manufacture their lives as if we're living them vicariously. But if we do that, we'll be like Rebecca, who tried to control Jacob's outcome and destroyed much of his future. Or as parents, because of our pride, if we have multiple children, we can gravitate towards the child that's easiest for us to be around and withdraw from the child that's most difficult to be around. And if we let that pride grow, we will be like Jacob and we know what he did to Joseph. Or because of our pride, we will be so ashamed of our own failures that we'll be afraid to actually parent because we'll say, I failed. I could never ask them to follow the Lord because of ways that I've blown it so badly. But if we give in to that level of pride, we'll be like David who could not parent Absalom and then eventually reap the whirlwind with him. Or because of our pride, we'll feel like such failures at our own shortcomings that will take out our shortcomings on our children. Like Saul, when he eventually threw a spear at his own son. Or as parents, we'll want our children to make us look good. We'll be so embarrassed if in public they do the opposite of what they hoped we hope they would do, or if they don't succeed in the way we want them to, that we will want them in public to accomplish our own desires. Think of how Herodias used Salome to get John the Baptist's head. So parents, what we will naturally bequeath our children is our pride. But by God's grace, what we can bequeath if we will humble ourselves and go to the cross We can bequeath them seeing their mother and father kneeling and saying, please forgive me. Them seeing their father and mother kneeling and say, God, please forgive me. Please help me. Let us bequeath a posture of humility, kneeling at the cross. So this text touches on relationships that are so personal and so impactful. Parents, children, how we interact in the home. So what can empower us then? to love our parents without spending our lives trying to prove them wrong or spending our lives trying to earn their favor? What can help us love our children without spending our lives trying to use them to give us a sense of achievement or trying to win their approval? What can empower us for that? And the answer is found at Mount Calvary. There, Jesus Christ, the perfect son, took our sin and experienced what is beyond our comprehension. He experienced the abandonment of his eternal father. He experienced what we fear most, losing the relationship with the person you covet. And on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he cried that so that you and I would never have to. See, if we go to Christ, rather than trying in our own grit to accomplish or secure someone else's approval. We will find that Christ can do all things because on his death, he took our shortcomings, but in his life, he gives his immense and immeasurable grace. And that's availed to you and I in our home. No matter what's happened up to this point, 
So this morning, a couple of responses for you. First, I want you to know this morning, whatever your biology, whatever your background is, those are not the most relevant factors of your future. The most relevant factor of your future is that there is a heavenly father who wants you. He sent his son as a gift for you. And the son gave himself so that you could be brought to this father forever. And there's a son who eternally loved and submitted to his father who can work in us a security that won't need to grab or coerce the approval of those even in our family. But even more than that, this is the redeemer who overcame death, (laughs) which means separation and can restore anything that's been lost. This applies to our homes. This applies to our relationships in our church as fathers and sons, mothers and daughters in the faith. And it applies to the future that he has for us in Christ. So let's go to him in prayer this morning. God, thank you for a short, straightforward passage that builds on the foundation of who you are and what you've done for us in your son. Thank you that there is grace for us as children, children who have not obeyed our parents perfectly, children who have dishonored our parents at times. We can be forgiven when we come to Christ, but more than that, Lord, we can be empowered for us to now be like Jesus' sons who honor their father and mother and who are a blessing to them. Work that in us for your own glory, but for the good of the design you have. Also, Lord, I, we come as parents who, who sin. We provoke, we exasperate. We don't always lean towards the nurture of formative discipline. We don't always lean towards the wisdom of corrective instruction. And so, Lord, we just ask for mercy and grace to overcome the exasperation that we have handed down and instead bequeath through us the humility of going to Christ. Lord, we, we pray that in doing so, that you will, even though it's countercultural, build homes that display the good news of the Bible, that there is a God who sent his son and there is a son who gave himself willingly to his father. Over and over again, Lord, um, we'll find ourselves in need of this. And so we thank you, Lord, that this text tells us that these things can be done in the Lord. I want to thank you also, though, that there are hurts that you know of that uh, that are particular to you, but there is healing that you give in the community of faith. Jesus told his disciples that no one has ever left father or mother who hasn't been repaid a hundred times, though. And I want to thank you for many relationships I've seen in the church that are a great restoration and preview of what you are working to redeem all things. And may we rejoice in them even this afternoon. In your son's name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's E-B-C-R-A-L-E-I-G-H dot com.